This is Mo Lotman, and you're listening to the Techno Skeptic Podcast. My guest today is Tim Wu, professor at Columbia Law, director of the Polyak Center for First Amendment Issues at Columbia Journalism School, policy advocate and author. He's written extensively about the intersection of communications, the economy, technology, and society for all sorts of places, The New Yorker, Slate, New Republic, New York Times, plus in books like The Master Switch. He's also worked at the FTC, Google, the media reform group Free Press, recently as a policy advisor to the National Economic Council, and is perhaps most famous for coining the phrase net neutrality. His most recent book is The Attention Merchants, A History of the Advertising Industry, and their increasingly invasive incursions into our lives. Tim Wu, Professor Wu, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. I just read The Attention Merchants. I loved it, by the way. Nice job. It was very engaging. And one, I'm going to quote you from that. You said, uh, time to think seriously about what it might mean to reclaim our collective consciousness. What is your thinking there? Well, you know, in the course of writing this book, and, and even before writing the book, I had the sense that um, we live in this sort of a cocoon of our own creation uh, technologically, but one which increasingly rules our every waking second. And that's a very fancy way of talking about the fact that we spend a lot of time on our phones and our computers and other, I guess, constructed attentional devices. I don't know if you've had this experience where you sit down to, to write an email and find like three hours later, the time has gone somewhere, you don't know what happened. So when I say like reclaim control of our attention, I think attention and consciousness are basically the same thing. It's a certain level reclaiming your life. Yeah, and you do you do a great job of giving a, a history of advertising, I think over, let's say, almost about 200 years. What, what you describe is a way in which advertising has kind of constantly encroached on places that were formerly off limits. So maybe just for our listeners, could you give people a roundup of how that's happened? Yeah, sure. I, I'd, I'd be pleased. Uh, what's documented in the book, and I think has affected our lives very much, is I guess a shrinking of what you might call places that are private or sacred or somehow off limits from, from commerce, and the replacement of that norm with a different norm, which is to say, if there's you know, any time or place that someone is um, located, well, someone ought to try and harvest uh, the attention that's there. Uh, you know, I opened the book with the um, uh, increasing move towards advertising in schools. Uh, it, just in broad strokes, it's, you know, spaces like the home. Uh, I think the home was once considered off limits uh, for, for any kind of advertising or commerce. And frankly, it was radio that, that broke that barrier with um, some very... Uh, enjoyable situation comedy. <laughs> uh, the social sphere, you know, the idea that our interactions with our friends would somehow be a, a way of advertising products or branding, that has uh, fallen away uh, in the last 10 or, 10 or 20 years with uh, social media so that our interactions uh, become encroached upon. And sometimes it's just little things like I was in an airplane seat the other day, which you kind of think is your own territory. Right. And they start running Lexus ads, you know, there you are, and you can't go anywhere. And so there's a sense that, you know, the spaces that we might have considered ours are not really ours anymore. And it's, I think, increasingly hard to own your own uh, space. And that's part of what this book is about. Right. 
You you also talked about, I think, several instances in the history of advertising where there was kind of this collective pushback for various reasons. Um, you talked about it with the patent medicine mm-hmm. as being one. And I was interested to see what you thought about whether we actually are really having any meaningful backlash right now, because you have what could be called the most invasive advertising regime in the history of humankind, where privacy is being destroyed and like you said, people are monetizing friendships. And some people seem to be annoyed by it, but what is the actual, is there a a backlash that's actually having an effect right now, do you think? That's a great question. So let me set up first of all what the backlash is historically. Advertising works by getting access to your mind and presenting it with messages that probably would not want to get otherwise. And at some point that frustrates or annoys people and they, they collectively or individually take action. Uh, you mentioned uh, patent medicine, revolt against patent medicine advertising, sort of stop believing it. Uh, in Paris at the turn of the last century, 19th century, there was a broad-based movement to regulate the poster, right. consider this you know, terrible intrusion on people's uh, day-to-day lives because they were everywhere, sort of screaming in their vibrant colors. It seems like nothing now, but at the right. time it seemed outlandish. Um, during the Depression, there was a great... Uh, Revolt against advertising in the 60s. We can talk about that. So, you know, there's these moments where people are like, you know, we've had it. Whether they amount to anything seems to me to depend on whether they reach some form of regulatory action, some discipline over the industry. Uh, during the Depression uh, and during patent medicine times, you had new truth and advertising laws that came out of it to try to deal with the most outrageous uh, lies and misrepresentations. Paris, uh, had sort of a zoning regime, which I think has played some role in keeping Paris beautiful. Right. So our efforts today uh, are an interesting question. So you have quite a few people who individually at least would say, oh, I don't watch advertising. I hate advertising. I use an ad blocker. You know, I, I ref- I'm a cord cutter. I refuse to watch commercial television. I think one question is whether this movement, such as it is, leads to any form of, of regulatory action. You know, with some experience in Washington, I, I could say that odds are very low. We, well, there was recently the FCC's ruling about broadband providers not harvesting data from their customers about sites without permission. Yes, I think a lot of what today um, would be considered part of the pushback is a privacy movement. Right. Privacy is, is important, but I think isn't getting to the core of a different problem. Okay. which is over-harvesting of attention, yeah. you know, intrusion, right. you know, losing essential control over, over your own life and what you pay attention to. The, the way a little bit we think about also junk food or over-sugary right. drinks, if you thought about it that way and developed a, a way of harm, I think maybe you could speak to regulating some of the worst of it. Let me just say one more thing. I, I guess the question is whether, and this is a question for our times, those that really hate despise, want to rebel against advertising, are able to organize themselves in some way to push back and offer some kind of deal to publishers to say, hey, this is a different way. Part of the story is people opting to pay for stuff. Right. So that's a certain form of rebellion, you know, subscription. You talked at one point, I think, about having a pay model for Facebook as an idea. Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, Facebook, I think the uh, estimates are it would cost $12 a year 
I think I'd pay that to see my friend's kids. Just to just to <laughs> just to clarify, so that everyone understands, it, it's about twelve dollars that Facebook makes off you right. by sell, selling your data per year. That's right. Or, or, or selling we're, we're pretty cheap, aren't we? Sell, selling access to you, to be more precise. Right. They're selling access to you at certain moments. Yeah, we're 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 cheap. You know, I have to think Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley has made this deal with the proverbial devil with advertising. You know, it, for, it was their right. deliverance. Yeah. And the uh, devil has come around to collect in the last couple of years, leading them to have <laughs> to increase the ad load, increase. I mean, every website's gotten worse in the last couple of years. Right. And, uh, and decreasing yeah. revenues, I believe, from those ads. Well, not for Google and Facebook, but for no, the publishers. Per, per ad. Per ad. Yes, Absolutely. So part of the rebellion, I guess I would say, if the revolt succeeds, either it's in regulation, which I think is unlikely, or it is by advertising models beginning to wilt and die uh, and people becoming a little more easy with that checkbook and like, okay, I'm going to pay for these sites. I can go on this forever, so maybe. Well, some people think that that model is dying. There are people that suggest that because it's become such a race to the bottom and because the ads themselves are generating less and less revenue because there's more and more of them and people are right. ignoring them that it will actually collapse as a model. Do you think that's possible? Um, I don't think advertising period will ever collapse in a sense. The idea is to, right. I guess I was speaking more yeah. specifically of the way a lot of web services are uh, offered. Yeah. I would say that model is doomed. <laughs> Advertising has a, an effect on the underlying medium, part of which I talk about in, in the book, that when your business model is all about gaining attention, right. it, it drives a certain way of being content-wise. You know, you have to continually try to be more outrageous, outlandish, grab people. You know, the, the ultimate end road of ad-based media on the web was, was BuzzFeed, basically. You know, a site devoted to nothing else but the pure harvest of attention by any means necessary. And, you know, sometimes you kind of think as a civilization we can do a little better. The program continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share or subscribe at technoskeptic.substack.com. We've got a lot of great content looking at the impact of technology on society. We cover a wide range of issues like privacy, economics, cognition, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and a whole lot more. If you have comments or want to contribute an article to the Technoskeptic, Email us at technoskeptic at substack.com. And now back to the show. Um, that's a great place to segue into a, another section of your book, The Attention Merchants. The, you talk about the worship of the individual and also about micro fame, I think, in, in mm. the book, which I thought was really interesting. The ecosystem of mm -hmm. attention, right. you know, would be the thing that would cause people to seek yeah. micro fame or individual attention. The internet gives you this opportunity for incredible specificity in whatever you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, you could say it's worshiping the individual. Yet at the same time, you have this giant medium in between you and everyone else. And there's and you're one tiny itty bitty voice in this sea of right. unimaginable stuff. It seems that seems to decrease the importance of any one individual. Isn't it funny how that's happened? You know, I'm a... 
relative old timer at this point, and I think the dream was, I shared in this dream, in the early 2000s, was that, um, you know, every individual would matter more because you would you know, share your thoughts about, I don't know, something you really care about, like sencha or <laughs> Japanese tea, to a devoted audience of, let's say, a thousand people. And so everyone would be a speaker, everyone would be a listener, you know, the old hierarchies would all disappear. The medium would truly be a medium in the sense that it would just serve as a way of connecting people as opposed to having an existence of in itself. Right. And now what you just described, which is true, is the opposite. You know, it feel, I think individuals feel some ways even smaller um, and that the winners really take all. And so that was unexpected. I think you have a, a smart audience, so I'm going to try out this uh, statement on micro-celebrity. If you take seriously the idea that attention is the currency uh, of our times, yep. it would then make sense that everyone in their own way wants to have their little collection of ability to get attention. Right. You know, their, their Twitter followers or something. Right, right. In the sense the American dream is everyone is wealthy, everyone's a millionaire. Well, maybe part of the American dream is everyone's a micro-celebrity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like the real American dream, I'm not sure how... In fact, I think it's even less attainable. I'm going to uh, jump from there to something else because the idea that... Which is, I think, what you're saying. We have a disconnect between what we think we want and what we actually want and how that gets manifested. We might think that the Internet is a great way for us to express our individuality and come to find out that it actually kind of buries us. And in a more broad sense... You, I, you wrote a piece, um, which I thought was great, about um, the OG Cree tribe, right, oh, yeah. in uh, Hudson Bay, who I guess were living a pretty pretty basic existence up until the 1940s and then went through just a very rapid technological change in a very brief amount of time because they got reached by trucks, I guess, at the time. And I think they built a road. <laughs> they built a road. That was Yeah, it. they built a road to them. Yeah. I'm going to quote you again. If we're not careful, our technological evolution will take us toward not a singularity, but a sofalarity, <laughs> which is a great line. Um, what about that? Well, yes. You know, I believe that we have, in most ways, taken control of our own evolution. I mean, as a society, not individuals, uh, because I believe we're evolving technologically as opposed to biologically now. Uh, we're conscious, we can make decisions, and we're choosing our own uh, destiny socially. But how are we doing it? Well, mainly we're in the search of eradication of discomfort and and uh, inconvenience and pain. <laughs> and um, I think that story of that tribe is a good example. I had a friend who was a doctor who worked with them, which was okay. partially where I, I got this. And so, you know, their, their old um, lifestyle, uh, they lived in the woods, they hunted, uh, food was scarce. Uh, the people who went to visit them commented they were the most physically fit people anyone had ever seen. I, I guess because you know they were snowshoeing miles a day to get food and uh, so forth. And, and maybe people who were uh, not physically fit <laughs> didn't, didn't make it. I'm, I'm not sure. Right, but they were incredibly right. physically fit. They were known for um, kind of buoyant spirit and, and so forth. And then uh, you know they got all of our technology in a rush. And they immediately gravitated to the things that would eliminate inconvenience and annoyance. So they went to snowmobiles as opposed to dog sleds or, or snowshoes and the rifle and um, started watching a lot. Of, uh, when they got electricity, a lot of television as opposed to uh, chatting. And 
the deterioration of this group was so extraordinary. And and then food, they had all the food they could want. That's another big thing. They didn't right. have to hunt anymore. They got food from other parts of uh, of Canada. Uh, the deterioration was uh, incredible. Um, you know, rates of obesity just went like, through the roof. Uh, when alcohol came, alcoholism, you know, went through the roof. Enormous diabetes problem. Uh, you know, life expectancy started going down. Like, and and partially it's it's what you said, you know, what you want is not always good for you. Um, they, in a very intense, you know, jumped right off a cliff and had this deliverance. It really is like a, a parable or something. But I think in some ways how we collectively make decisions about what we want to be as a species is not obviously wise. Right. Um, I mean, it's not like we sit around and decide... Oh, um, I, I don't know. This is a good course to take. Frankly, whatever business models work tend to determine who we are becoming as a species. I, I think I kind of wrote the master switch with this idea right. in mind. You know, that desire to overcome boredom and a business model that can support that uh, has driven a lot of what we are becoming and how we live our lives. And I guess it's sort of a wake-up call, like, hey, this is who we are and what our lives are like. So maybe we better think about uh think about this carefully yeah yeah i love the master switch as well and um i think a lot of the stuff that you write about in there is so relevant to both the internet and and economic issue that we've just been talking about because if economics is driving behavior not through the basic economics of i need to eat but through a complex system of capitalism where people are rewarded for things that are not necessarily obviously good for you like angry birds or (laughs) pick your it's very strange you know it's late stage capitalism or something so i mean capitalism's i guess great triumph uh is in the developed world having solved the basic problems of scarcity for most people right you know lack of food Lack of uh, shelter, right? Lack of clothing. Th- those essentials, and maybe even boredom. You know, those basic problems. Uh, developed world, um, essentially solved. I mean, you can find some people. The problem is that you know the engine having solved that, it has gone out looking for other things to do. Right. <laughs> I mean, people started talking about Galbraith. Kenneth Galbraith started talking about it in the fifties. His theory as to why advertising exists was that we had satisfied all our basic desires, and so we now were trying to make up new ones. Right. Um, and um, you know, Manufactured like, need. Yeah, uh, manufactured needs. That's, uh, so that was, that was his idea. And you know, it's kind of almost gotten uh, more extreme in, in our times because, yes, this engine is still running. Uh, we've taken care of the basics. And so it is going to unusual rarefied forms, such as the harvest of our attention. I mean... If I described this book 100 years ago, people would be like, what are you talking about? Right. You mean the most valuable companies in the world make their money by being free and then providing access to people's minds for advertisers? That That's the tabloid newspapers do that. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not important industry. Right. You're talking the part of the economy, is that? Yeah. Um, in the Master Switch, you talk uh, a lot about the cycle mm-hmm. of of great communications systems and corporations moving from open to closed and in some cases back again mm-hmm. to open the open sounds preferable from for all the obvious reasons but then that has some problems too yeah let me first uh, 
tried to explain the, the cycle as I, I meant it in the master switch. You have um, at the beginning of the cycle a new invention, and it's not your incremental better mousetrap. No, this this is something that completely changes the way right. uh, we function, and some you know changes what it means to live. Right. The telephone, the radio, right. television. I mean, these are ground clearing inventions. Personal computer. There, from that period, tends to emerge afterwards uh, a period maybe 10 or 15 years long, maybe longest 20, of openness, relative chaos. No one quite knows which business model is going to work. There's different ideas. You know, sometimes some people thought the telephone would be great for broadcasting. Like you pick up the telephone, you listen to a concert. Right. You know, some people, radio originally was used person to person. So there's this period where no one really knows what's going to work or going to be the right uh, business model. And um, culturally, it tends to be a very experimental, open period. It's exciting. Um, and it's utopian often. Often it's usually uh, accompanied by a sense that this technology, I think it's particularly an American thing, um, is going to finally liberate us from whatever shackles have ruined democracy or commerce or culture, whatever it is. Like this right. is going to be the, the solution. Um, a sort of religious kind of sense there, almost a second coming feeling. This time it's for real. And uh, this happened with almost every, I mean, this happened with literally every single one of the yes, technologies, right? Including cable television, which surprises some people <laughs> that there was this period where cable television was going to fix American democracy, uh, restore the American family and overcome Through education or? Well, they had the idea, the real problem with broadcast TV is it's just three prophets on high telling us what's what and right. cable will cater to people where they really are. There'll be the full spectrum of, you know, the American population, uh, which there are, frankly. Um, I just think the results were a little different than people thought. Right. <laughs> Particularly because the business models that worked out were different than people thought. Um, you have those chaotic periods. And then ultimately, out of those periods, either a single company or a group of company emerges from the rest, forming a, a monopoly or oligopoly. And they... Uh, move it into a, a closed, more closed period or monopolistic period, uh, which frankly itself has several stages. Uh, there's an early phase, which is typically kind of a golden age, right when they figure out the business model, when it's new. Uh, the usual, there's someone charismatic who runs one of these companies, uh, Bell, in its early days, 1920s. Um, you talked about connecting Thomas America. Vail. Thomas Vail, this highly charismatic uh, you know, imperial figure. I think a Google in its early days, in the 2000s, um, we do no evil. We're a different kind of company, you know, that kind of thing. Um, sh showed signs of that, of it being in the golden age. And then uh, finally you get to a more stagnant period where the companies in power um, sort of lose whatever youthful enthusiasm they, they once had and tend to focus their efforts on trying to prevent their replacement. Right. They're a little like an incumbent congressman who's been there right. for a very long time and right. just basically trying to win another election. And that can last a long time. In case of Bell Telephone, it lasts 70 years. Uh, yeah. Know, the question at the end of the master switch is, uh, you know, when we have a group of really big companies taking over the web and the internet, are they going to be there perpetually or, you know, what's it going to be? <laughs> and that was, uh, I think, still an unanswered question. Right. Yeah. Do you think, because you talk about 
uh, like we said, Thomas Vale. There's also David Sarnoff at RCA and later mm-hmm. NBC is, is one of the people that you talk a lot about, actually in both books. Yeah. Um, do you think that the message of these individuals is that these are the individuals that made this turn out this way, or are they merely interchangeable characters in a drama that repeats and it could it could have been anyone that's an interesting question it's a, that's actually a serious question for academic history as to whether like great men or women but usually great men make history or whether you know structural conditions create all these things i tend to think it's both in other words you both need an opportunity uh, and the, and i think the economic conditions create it but then you know, the right person at the right time with a particular kind of set of skills or personalities um, being there does, I think, change uh, history. And you see in political history and politics uh, all, all the time. I mean, frankly, just real emperors. Right. You know, like the emperor of China or something, the first emperor, people with that ambition. They, I think they make a big difference. There'll be academic historians who say I'm crazy for saying that, but I, I, uh, that's what I believe. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that you talk about in hoping for an open systems in general versus closed systems is that it promotes the most rapid and efficient innovation. But given what some of the things that we've just discussed, I wonder if rapid and efficient innovation is necessarily even desirable. It seems like there's a disconnect between the desire for this innovation, whatever that means, and the human capacity to adapt. And there's not quite enough time to gauge whether whatever innovation is actually happening is beneficial. Do you, would we maybe be better off slowing innovation down? That's an interesting question. And I think is uh, very, uh, <laughs> very astute in pointing out contradictions uh, in my own work. Uh, and well, I, think, I didn't mean and, it that no, way. No, no, I think it's fine. I, I, I feel them. I, I welcome them. I've been, writing, I've been writing over a 15-year period and one where I think that innovation was almost um, enshrined, worshipped, um, uh, Joseph Schumpeter with the prophet to one, and I think this is common in these uh, in his course of history where people, particularly right now, I think we're at uh, almost a nadir of uh, pessimism about you know what the web has done, you know with fake news and filter bubbles and so so I think we're at, at this yeah. uh, very low period and you know it's worth asking. Well, I, I think I'll stick to my guns and say, as much as there's dangers. F- from excessive innovation, whatever that means, or you know, they can it can go sour. I also have a another kind of concern about stagnancy. There are periods when a society begins, or an industry, or an area begin to feel stagnant, locked. You know, there there's a, a lack of energy. It's this really challenging balance of wanting a certain kind of vibrancy. And, and 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 newness without the cancer of uncontrolled growth, right? And and you know I can't like sit here and say that's this is how you do it, but I know it's not by eliminating any openness to new ideas. I mean that that right uh, can really lock us into a cage. So it's some kind of balance. Some kind of balance. Okay, and it's hard to know. I mean, there are occasionally times you wonder. You're like you know the the Amish. They they just cut the you know they close the gate. You know, sometimes they seem pretty happy. They you do, know? And, yes. And, but I don't know. I mean, like they seem pretty happy. I don't know what it's like to, to live in that society. Uh, it, it also gets to religious questions as to what the, the point of life is. But I am wary and agree with the 
you know, some of our promises of unchecked growth and, uh, you know, overdoing it. Right. <laughs> and I think we're not so good at recognizing that. But again, you know, I'm this person who believes in cycles. So maybe I'm optimistic, but I hope that we look and be like, well, you know, we kind of went too far there. It's time to, to turn turn it back a little bit. At least that's my, my hope. Yeah, that's that's kind of optimistic. I like that. Yeah. You were a law clerk for both Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer and Richard Posner. Maybe you saw this. Judge Posner recently said that there was no value in studying the Constitution because it's essentially outdated that the founders couldn't foresee the changes in technology and culture that have happened. And, and <laughs> it doesn't if, surprise me at all. <laughs> do you think we need a new laws or even a new Constitution to account for the technological change that we're seeing? You know, he has a good point. I mean, what uh, Richard Posner uh, loves to push buttons and almost sees his role as someone who's going to do it. It's a point. It's a document. It's not uh, holy writ. You know, they wrote the Constitution. Sixty years later, the country was in civil war. So in terms of the most basic function, which is keeping the country together, it failed. Um, you know, it's been patched up a million times with all these amendments, some of which work, some of which don't. Uh, I uh, share his resistance to the idea that the, we have the best of all possible constitutions and it's, you know, unpatriotic to question the Electoral College is a very good example of something that you know does seem to be strange to have someone who doesn't win the popular election uh, not be the, the president, just to take uh, one example. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, you know, I believe in a, a dynamic uh, document, and I think it's worth asking questions like that. Whether it's of no value, I mean, he's... He's having some fun with that right. moment. <laughs> um, okay, I think this will be my last question. One of your chapters is titled, The Web Hits Bottom. Rock bottom. So, so has it, and where do we go from here? Uh, I think it has. I date the year I, 15, 16. I, I would hope in some history of the web, the, the, the bottom. Um, so you think it's going to go up? I do. Either it goes up or it becomes forgotten. Interesting. You know, it, it does happen that technology is just fade. And that could happen. The web could potentially, I don't see it in the short term, but sort of fade in favor of some other internet application. I mean, the internet's still around. Uh, it could also get better if a different business model takes off. In some ways, Netflix is the forerunner. Uh, Netflix is an internet application. We don't think of it that way. Right. It's not contaminated by intrusive advertising. So that is uh, possible. If it, if it goes up, it's based on the business model changing and, frankly, based on people paying for stuff that they support and there being more money for content producers to do their thing. You know, a lot of us in the 2000s, I, I think we're naive. We hoped that um, the people left to their own devices, free to create whatever they want, would uh, you know create without being paid <laughs> content that would be good till the end of time. Right. And I just don't really think it feels true anymore. There is some value to, I think, to professionalism. There's still this small niche of, you know, the true hobbyist. But, you know, now they've become, it's not like everyone. It's this kind of tiny uh, fringe. And then there's the vast wasteland, um, the rest of it, the cajoling listicles, the fact that so many newspapers and media outlets have become more and more like BuzzFeed, the sort of endless mindlessness of it all. Uh, and it's fake news, bubble filled, you, you name it. That, I think, uh, is the web at rock bottom. 
Well, that is a great place to stop. Thank you so much, Tim Wu. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, terrific. Thank you. One last thing before we go. I'd like to ask listeners to please go to whatever podcast app you use and put a review there for the Technoskeptic Magazine podcast. When the Technoskeptic switched from WordPress to Substack, our podcast feed also changed, so all our previous reviews went away. We'd really appreciate it if you help us catch back up to where we were and leave us a nice review. Thanks.